0: As we come now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of James in chapter 2? If this sounds familiar, this is exactly where we were last week. So uh, this is James chapter 2. Before we read, however, would you please, please pray with me. Lord. This is your word, and your word is good because you are good. Lord, would you not let us be hearers only, but doers of your word? In this time, would you cause us to hear, cause us to desire you, and bring us to do these things? By your spirit, would you conform our will to yours? Open our minds now to see, to believe, and to follow you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is James in chapter 2. I'll read here from verse 14 through the end of the chapter. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. Now, there's a lot in here I know, so we've had to divide out this uh, between this week and last week. If you're not here, you can go back and listen to last Sunday's sermon if you so wish. But we, we began to address last week this memorable line here in James that faith without works is dead. So last week we looked at dead Faith. The kind of situation in which faith and works are are, are severed. And James says in that situation it's dead, like the body apart from the spirit is dead. This week we want to lean into the issue of a living faith. And a living faith, as we might expect, is the opposite of a dead faith. That that, That in some sense a living faith is accompanied by some sort of works. This connection between faith and good works, especially in the way that that James uh, talks about how a Christian is justified by faith and works, this connection has caused a lot of friction in church history. Uh, Martin Luther, I know he's a few hundreds of uh, years ago, and you may know nothing about him other than the fact that his, he had a strange uh, uh, haircut. Martin Luther had really strong feelings about the book of James. You know, at one point in his life, he said the letter of James was an epistle of straw. Uh, and another time, he said, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove, which makes me chuckle, too. Uh, it, it, I, it almost feels like that's not okay to say. I mean, it's part of the Bible, after all. Can you throw it in the stove? And Plus, can you call James Jimmy? Is that all right? I, I don't know. Um, but Martin Luther does not think that James is not part of the Word of God, that it's not useful in some way, that he, he doesn't want it kicked out of the Bible. But he did have some major wrestles with the way that James focuses on the law, the focus is on obedience. So we need to clarify the relationship between faith and works. That will be our, our goal today. A very old summary, which we mentioned last week, I'll mention again, is this. The connection is faith alone saves. That is, faith is the sole means by which we are joined to Christ who saves us. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It produces things. It produces work. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Or we could say that in terms of living faith, living faith in Christ will by itself produce both salvation and works. That's another way to put the connection. Now, both of these are good and tidy summaries, but the real question is, do those summaries fit with what the scripture says? Especially for us now, here as we're in the book of James, does this fit with what James has told us? So let me, let me show you the main rub here, where the friction comes from. So if you're reading in your own Bible, stick your finger here in James and turn backward to Romans in chapter 3. This is a tiny bit technical, but you can handle it. Uh, I even gave you a summary of this on your bulletin insert if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes. I gave you a nice, tidy space to put all of this. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 28. This is what we hear from Paul. Here's his line. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what Paul has told us in Romans. Now, if we flip back to James, here in chapter 2, verse 24, James says, you see a person's justified by works and not faith alone. So... Paul says we're justified by faith apart from works. James says we're justified by works, and not by faith alone. Both are talking about this justification, that we're justified. That's a technical term which we'll get to in a moment that usually talks about the way in which we're saved by Jesus, but according to Paul we're justified by faith apart from works, and James we're justified by works with faith. So, so which is it? Is it faith and works? Is it faith by itself? Who's right here? So James or Paul, and and more importantly, is Scripture contradicting itself? You know, was this a sort of oopsie in the Bible? That maybe Paul and James should have gotten together and compared notes and gotten on the same page? You know, are they really saying opposite things? Is this a moment of Bible schizophrenia? And multiple personalities showing up where there ought to be one thing? No. That's not what's happening here. There is not a contradiction in God's word. There's not a conflict between James and Paul. There's not even a correction where one says one thing at a certain time and later someone comes and overrules that for a later time. What's happening here is that James and Paul are not even having the same conversation. James and Paul are not even having the same conversation. They're using some of the same words, but they're talking about very different things. So this uh, this is not just a, a convenient excuse, a little workaround to try to fit the round peg into a square hole and defend the Bible against those who would say things against it. We have different conversations using the same words all the time. This is very common. We know what this is like. So just an example from the Scripture. When we come across the word in the Bible, the word Flesh. You know that word's not some people's favorite word. Just the sound of it, it sounds like you know moist. Not your favorite word. Flesh. It sounds kind of squishy. Flesh can mean various things in the Bible. Sometimes flesh, that word, is talking about our skin, our bodies, our corporal selves. Sometimes, though, the word flesh is a reference to not our skin but our our sin. The corruption of our nature, the desires in us that are contrary to God. So, one flesh is good, skin is good, the other flesh is bad. And we need to know which conversation we're in when we read that word so that we understand it right. So, when we hear Peter say, for example, that Christ suffered in his flesh, he means Christ suffered in his skin that his body died that when he when he was crucified beaten and pierced with nails that it hurt it was painful he is not saying that christ suffered in his flesh you know in his sin nature that Christ was somehow wrestling with his own sin. Jesus was without sin. He does not have a flesh sin nature like we do. It would totally change all that we know of Jesus if that were the case, and we would misinterpret the conversation we were having if we think of it that way. So here's the issue here with James and Paul. The two of them are having different conversations but using this same word, Justified. So uh, we need to talk about then what justified actually means or what it can mean. The Greek word for justification, I know you were hoping on, on the morning after you lost an hour of sleep to talk about Greek words, right? Uh, but, but here we are. I didn't pick the text. It's here. The Greek word for justification can mean a couple of things in the scripture. And if you're the kind of person that scribbles on your paper, here's another one. Usually justification means... To declare righteous. To declare righteous, that is, to count as righteous. This is something that God does at a single point in the life of a person who puts faith in Jesus. That is, when we have a living faith in Jesus, we are justified, Or in the kind of cheesy way to put it, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That I am seen as righteous in the sight of God. That he he does not have wrath for my sin because Christ has now counted me righteous. That's what we said in our confession of faith, whether you knew it or not. Uh, Part of it is God pardons our sin and looks on us and accepts us as if we were righteous. And later, we receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness by faith. This is the most common meaning of the word in the scripture, that it's a declaration of righteousness, but it can also mean something else. It can also mean to display or to show as righteous. Not declare, but to display it. So here's an example in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 we hear this said about Jesus Jesus was manifested in the flesh and vindicated or justified greek word justified by the spirit so the question then is what way is Christ justified I mean, Jesus is not declared or counted as righteous. He doesn't need that. Jesus already is righteous. No one needs to declare, pronounce him as righteous. No, his righteousness is displayed. He is shown as righteous. This is the second meaning of the word justified, and that's usually how we use the word in English outside of the Bible. So if you you order something online and and, and, uh, the package gets to you, two-day delivery, and it arrives on your doorstep, and you open it up, and what's inside is broken. And you write a letter back to the people, you take a little picture, you send it back, and you say, see, this is broken. I think a refund is justified. That is, I think a refund is fitting. You're not counting the refund as righteous. You're showing that it would be right to give a refund. That's what we usually mean by justification. These are the technical ways to think about it. One's to declare, one is to display. But if it helps you wrap your mind around it, it certainly does to me. Let's look at the, the, the situation in a courtroom. So there's a sort of justification that can happen by the, the hand or the or act of a judge. That it's a judge has the authority and the right to bang the gavel and to declare righteous. To just pronounce the sentence. In one single moment, you are declared righteous. The second form is is done by way of testimony. Not by a judge, by testimony. So maybe people come in and bear witness to certain things, or they bring in evidence to show it. And these can be repeated over and over to show the, it's a display of righteousness. Look, here's the righteousness. Or one final way I'll do it. Another way to say this distinction between the two, which is done by an old guy, William Tyndale, if you know his name from Luther's period, he's a, Bi- a biblely guy. The first is that we're justified in the sight of God, the second one is that we're justified in the sight of the world. There's, there's another way to put the difference. All right. A lot of technical pieces here. All right. I'm hammering home this difference, I think, I hope, uh, to see that these are both good. Both of these forms of justification are both good. They're both important. They just do different things. Now, let's plug this back into James and Paul. The way that Paul uses this word is that we are justified in the first sense. We're declared righteous, and that comes only by faith, faith alone, no works whatsoever. That is, when we are united with Christ, we are accepted as righteous before God, fully, without spot and without sin, counted and declared as righteous. That's what Paul means. James, however, uses this description in a different way. He's talking about justification as displaying our righteousness. And this does come by works as an outcome of our faith. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. It is evidence of his faith. It is testimony of his faith. So it makes a really big difference how we understand James here. When he talks about how we are justified by works, he does not tell us that our works add anything to our salvation. He does not say we're making contribution, little down payments on getting into heaven by our works, but he is saying that our works show our salvation. Our works are the way that the world can see that our faith is alive, that Christ is alive in us. That's his intention in spelling all this out in this very technical way. Bear with me this one final piece. If you've checked out, hold on. I'll come back and pick you up. But the final verses on this section in this section of verses we've read. In the final verses, James gives us two case studies of people in particular who are justified by works. He mentions Abraham, Father Abraham, that we all know from the singing, and Rahab, the prostitute. And we don't have time to unpack all of these, and even if we did, I think, you know, it would be too, too much for us to digest. But there's a couple of things that are worth noting, especially about Abraham. Look at Verse 23. We get a quotation here from the Old Testament where James says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In that verse, there's no mention, notice, of any of Abraham's works, good, bad, or otherwise. No mention at all. There's just his belief. Just his his faith, that by faith alone he is counted as righteous, that is, he's declared righteous, he is justified in the sight of God. This moment is a direct quote from the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 15. And here's what's going on in Genesis chapter 15. Prior to that moment, we know almost nothing, or at least very little, about Abraham's life prior to Genesis 15. There's actually very little history before that at all. It's Genesis after all. But before that, we see Abraham kind of wandering around and shepherding things. He's doing his regular work. So all of this, this moment is before Abraham became Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. This is the moment before he even has one son, the the promised son, Isaac, And so all that we have seen at the moment of Genesis chapter 15 is that God, Yahweh, the Lord, makes a covenant, a promise with Abraham. We don't know why. Why he chose Abraham. There's no reason given because Abraham was so great. He just, God makes a promise with him and Abraham hears and believes. He puts faith in God, and that is counted to him as righteousness. Paul makes a very long argument, by the way, about this in Romans chapter 4, if you're interested in reading, reading more about this. Now, that said, James agrees with this. Abraham is counted righteous in this moment, but that's not the point James is getting after. James tells us in verse 21 that Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So here's what's going on. In Genesis chapter 15, we hear that Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. His faith alone, and he's counted as righteous before God. And then in Genesis chapter 22, that's when we see the scene about the son, Isaac, being offered. So this is seven chapters later, decades later in the time span. We now see that Abraham has had a son, the son of the promise. He's about to become Father Abraham. And the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice that promised son, to put him on the altar and kill him. And Abraham Does. At least he's willing to. He puts his son on the altar and is, is stopped at the very last moment. Abraham's offering of his son was proof of his faith. It was a testing of his faith. And in that sense, he is justified now in this moment in the second sense. It is evidence it is works that evidence his faith, that show the genuineness of his faith. Or as James puts it, faith was completed now by his works. Or that in some sense they're fulfilled, that faith has now done what it was designed to do, that it, that it bears fruit in the work of obedience. His point in telling us all of this is to call us to the same sort of obedience, the same sort of works that are a result of our faith. Now, here is at least part of why the letter of James was so upsetting to Luther, part of the reason why he wanted to throw Jimmy in the stove, because scripture teaches consistently both in James and in the rest of the bible that our good work is fruit not root of salvation did you get that if you fell asleep come back so i could say it again our good work is fruit not the root of our salvation that it is the, the it is the Product. It is the outcome and not the cause of God's grace. But in Luther's day, most of the church got this backward. They put good works instead of in the fruit. They put good works at the, at the root. And began to teach that you must do X, you must do Y, you must do Z in order for Jesus to save you. You have to dress a certain way. You have to do a certain thing. They started to to misunderstand James and would use these texts to defend this sort of thing. So in order for for Jesus to save you, you have to have the works of obedience. You have to be a real servant of Jesus. You have to cut out all your sins, and you have to do all these prayers and penances, and then Jesus will declare you as righteous, and then you have a shot finally. That's what was being taught in Luther's day. And Luther bought into that lie for most of his young life. And it was gutting to him to live off of the effort of his works before God. Some people are able to kind of mentally just ignore their own sin, just kind of push it aside and try to kick it out and and hope that God's not noticing. But Luther was just plagued by this, tortured then by his own failures and the things that he knew how far he was falling from God's grace. Luther was plagued by fear and he was constantly worried whether he was holy enough to receive the mercy of God Luther was constantly trying to justify himself and to give any sort of evidence in his life that could prove his righteousness before God, and he could never seem to do it. Until one day, Luther bumped into a small verse in Romans 1. It's Romans 1, verse 17, if you're curious. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And when he read this verse, it's like a light bulb went on. It's amazing to hear him describe uh, that experience, that the Spirit somehow opened his eyes. The verse says simply this, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That is, that it is only by faith that God justifies or counts us as righteous. That our righteousness comes by God's grace, not by our own work, and that unlocked everything for Luther. It made his faith a delight and not a drudgery. Luther in that moment was likely converted, was reborn as a Christian, And after that point, it became the passionate cry of Luther and many of the reformers in the 16th century that they would return to the Scripture's teaching over and over on faith, that they would cry again and again, sola fide, sola fide, meaning only faith, only faith. And that cry, the Spirit used as a spark to ignite a revolution throughout Europe, That people came to see Christ and Christianity as a whole not as a bunch of bad news, a list of works and checklists to try to get you to God, but that Christ and the gospel is good news of how God has met us by his own work. And our response is only faith. It's not that the Reformers or Luther didn't care about our work. We want obedience. Luther described faith as being a living, busy, active thing. And he even went so far as to say, whoever does not do good works is an unbeliever. And that's true. That should be upsetting to some people. But if we rightly understand James and Paul and even Luther all together, they're all saying the same thing, which is that faith alone saves, but that faith and works are present in the life of a believer. Faith alone saves, but a living faith that saves is never alone. That it produces good work now, last thing, and then we're done. Where does this take us? You know, wh- wh- where do we go from here? I read this, it's the Bible, I check and I go, okay, what do, what do I do with all of this? I know that much of what we talked about in this last 25 minutes or so has maybe sounded complex and doctrinal and all these pieces trying to tease out who says what and all those things. Okay, I, I hope that was good at least for one or two of you. But the call of James, if we just look at it simply, is just pretty plain here. He wants good works to be the product of our lives in Jesus. That's his call, faithful living. And I know that there can be seasons of life in which we overemphasize work. There can be seasons in which we underemphasize work some in which we focus too much on the work, some in which we focus too little on our obedience to God, and so I don't know where you are at this point in your life. Uh, You'll need some wisdom to discern how that will play out for you. I trust the Spirit to do that work in you as you examine your own life and how to play this out, but even though I don't know how to apply that to each of you individually, I will venture to paint with a very broad brush. In Luther's day there was a tendency in the church to give an excessive focus on obedience, to push hard in the work, 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 so much so that at least according to Luther, and I think he's right, they used James to push us even farther away from the truth, to lose contact with Jesus, faith, rest even in Christ. That is what made Luther want to chuck Jimmy into the stove. Our culture is not the same as Luther's. Our tendencies in the church at large, at least in the West, are not the same. If anything, we underemphasize obedience. We have forgotten that a holy God has adopted us into his family and calls us now to holiness And we're not seeing that played out in the church. Instead of holiness in the lives of the church, we see people who are entitled, we see people who are quick to judge. We see people who believe and spread lies instead of seeking the truth. We see church members who set up their politicians as idols and don't even realize it. On the whole the church has just started to look like a big bunch of complainers. And if that's the way it looks from the outside, I have to admit that from the inside, they're probably not wrong about that. This is not honoring to God. And if that's the case... We need God's grace, yes, we trust in Christ, but we also are in need of profound repentance. Rather than throw Jimmy into the stove because he's pushing us farther away from Jesus, we need good old Jimmy to draw us back to Jesus. It's probably better to lay James, these words of James, that faith without deeds is dead right in the middle of our kitchen table so that the Spirit can speak to us and will listen. We want our faith in Jesus to be alive. So while we've been declared righteous by God, we now want to display his righteousness to the world who watches us. would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, even in saying these things now, I am stung by these words in my own life. I don't want this for me, for us or for any part of the church. Would you keep us from the danger of dead faith? Would you help us to consider how to stir up each other to love and good works? Would you help us to plant and to water, knowing that you are the one that provides the growth? Lord, make us a faithful people who delight to follow and to obey you. You're our God, and we trust your love and faithfulness. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.